Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About that is particularly dedicated to those of you who do not live in Austin and who cannot take part in our in-person events, at least if you're not visiting. Today you'll listen to the table talk that UT professor of philosophy Robert Koons delivered here in Austin on January 31st, 2022, and as the title suggests, it is a talk about love. Specifically, Professor Kuhn's addressed for us the question of whether um, the Christian ethic of selfless, self-sacrificial agape might be reconciled with the classic eudaimonism of the Greeks, of Socrates, of Plato, and of Aristotle. And let me tell you that the good news is Professor Kuhn's believed that they can be reconciled, as Aquinas did before him. As you tune in and as you enjoy your coffee or your walk, we hope that you will show us a little love too. You can do it by sharing this episode among friends and family, by following us on social media, and, of course, by donating to the Austin Institute. Thank you, and enjoy. So, uh, so what we're going to talk about tonight is happiness. That's the theme for the semester. And um, like a lot of my work, it's going to be about... Um, the reconciliation or the concordance between philosophy and, uh, and theology, or between faith and reason, uh, the Greeks and Jerusalem, and so on, right? So, um, uh, so this is why the idea of eros and agape came up. So there, there was a, a Swedish, um, Swedish theologian named uh, Anders Nygren, wrote an important uh, book in, in the 20s called Eros and, and Agape, and um, he's my sort of my foil. So he said, you know, there's this Greek idea of eros, which is love seeking an object, and that is, there's something selfish about that because you're seeking the good for yourself. You're seeking your own happiness. And he said Christianity comes along and brings us with agape, brings us agape, which is this idea of a selfless love, completely the opposite of eros, right? And therefore, um, there's a profound contradiction between Greek philosophy that's all about Eros, pursuing one's own good, and Christian agape, which is all about selflessness, giving, uh, which God, of course, gives to us, and then we're supposed to give to others in a, in a selfless sort of way. Uh, and in particular, Nigren mentions uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, I'll talk about it quite a bit tonight. In fact, most of my talk is going to be about his view about these things. And he says Aquinas, of course, tries to reconcile these two, tries to reconcile Eros, the Greek philosophy Eros, and Christian agape and fails to do so, that it leads to a series of contradictions. And so I want to start out um, laying out what um, Thomas's views are, St. Thomas's views are on happiness in such a way that I think will bring out the problem that Nigrin is pointing to, actually. And then I'll talk about you know, the potential tensions between these two sides of Thomas, the Greek side and the Christian side, so to speak, the philosophical side and the, and the theological side. And then finally, say a little something about why I think we can reconcile these two and that Thomas is right. There's not a real deep contradiction between the two. But there is an apparent contradiction, right? There is a, a, a superficial least problem. So uh, in your, you have some handouts uh, tonight, uh, which I laid out uh, from an article by uh, David Gallagher, very nice little article about Aquinas on self-love, and uh, from 1999, uh, eight different theses from Thomas's view. Uh, and then I'll bring out what appear to be five contradictions, internal contradictions within Thomas's view, points at which these eight theses seem to be in conflict with each other. 
And then I'll finally say something about how I think we can solve those contradictions, why, why we can resolve those. But it's, it's not easy. So it's actually, it takes some serious philosophical work to figure out how to do that. Okay, so here are some eight theses. Um, the first um, three <coughs> have to do with how St. Thomas, Thomas sees um, metaphysics the th or, the, or philosophical anthropology, the theory about what human beings are, uh, providing a kind of foundation for ethics and for a uh, theory of happiness. Right? So, so Thomas really sees human beings as uh, a part of, well, as, as examples of what he calls substances, okay? Usia in Greek, substantia in, in, in Latin which are the fundamental sort of building blocks of reality. It's what reality is fundamentally made up of, and we human beings are a part of that. And on his view, and, and this comes from Aristotle, all of the substances of the world have, a, have an ultimate end, a thing towards which they're striving by their very nature. Right? And so each complete substance has exactly one ultimate end, according to Thomas, and two distinct substances have to have two diff different ends. So an end means the ultimate purpose or goal that the substance is striving for. Right? And for, for Aristotle, this is true even for inorganic things. So every bit of earth or water or air for Aristotle has a kind of end that it's striving for. In his sort of picture of the world, uh, earth is striving to get to the center of the universe, air and fire are striving to go up, right? But, um, but that's, I mean, it's not that he thought that air and, and earth had conscious desires, right, to, to, to go in a particular direction. But it's rather that our conscious desires for things are the special case of a much broader, broader category. Every substantial thing aims or strives for something. And when you're conscious or even intelligent, that striving takes a particular form of conscious desire or conscious striving. But it's, it's part of what makes up the structure of the universe, right? And this is very important because it means that for for Aristotle and for St. Thomas, um, you don't get to choose what your ultimate end is. That's built into who you are as a human being, right? Just as rocks, Earth doesn't get to choose whether it wants to go down, right? It's going to do it, right? Electrons don't get to choose whether they satisfy Coulomb's law, they're going to do it. Human beings don't get to choose what our ultimate end is. It's built into us as, a human, as human beings. Um, and then the second thesis is that that ultimate end for each substance is the perfection of its known nature. So everything that exists is trying to perfect itself. And again, this is true for all creatures. Even in organic creatures, we can see this among plants and animals, that they're all striving through their desires and through their activities to become a kind of perfect example of the oak tree or a squirrel or what have you. And again, human beings are not an exception to that. We're also striving to perfect our own human natures. And, and then this is, where, this is where Thomas then introduces Christian theology, the third, third thesis, which is that for human beings, the ultimate end is what he calls the beatific vision, which is to know God as God really is. We could talk about this quite a bit. Um, it's a very interesting part of, of the Summa Theologia where he, he argues that you know, as human beings, you know, every child right, what, from two, three, four, five years old, right, the favorite ask, question is why? why. Why is that? Why is the sky blue? Why does the earth, why does the sun rise and so on? And if you answer one question, they give another why question. right? And, they get, and that's just the way we are as human beings. We want to understand things. And we want to understand things in terms of their causes. And St. Thomas says that drives us to look for the ultimate cause of everything. 
right? And that we can't be satisfied until we understand what that ultimate cause is. But of course, the ultimate cause is God. Right? He's the ultimate cause for everything. So as human beings, we can never be truly satisfied until we know God as he truly is. And so that's the end that we're ultimately pursuing. Okay, I'll go into that in a little bit more detail here in a bit. Now, the fourth thesis, this is kind of interesting. The fourth thesis is that since we are all striving for this ultimate end, a certain kind of self-love, which is the love that drives us to reach our own perfection, is for Thomas the foundation for all the other loves. So everything else that we love or desire, we love or desire because we love or desire this ultimate end of our own perfection, our own happiness, as, uh, as Thomas puts it. Okay, so those, that's the four theses on one side. Now we're going to sort of switch a bit. So the fifth thesis has to do with what we'll call the order of charity, ordo caritatis in Latin. This requires, this is a very important concept, which I hope we can get into in discussion here. Um, this requires us to love ourselves more than we love other people, according to Thomas, and to love our families more than we love non-family members, and to love members of our own political community more than we love people outside that community. Okay? A lot of people don't understand this is part of St. Thomas's theory, but it is. It's a very important part. Um, and, and you know, a lot of people think that um, Christianity is, is all about being against selfishness, right? but that's actually not, not right. <laughs> That's a sort of Buddhist conception of ethics, right? That the fundamental problem with the world is that we're all selfish and we need to be selfless. It's not the Christian view. Um, C.S. Lewis in, in the uh, uh, book, his, his, his lecture on, um, the, uh, on the, uh, what's it called, yeah, the weight of glory makes this point that uh, our problem from a Christian point of view is not that our desires for ourselves are too great, but they're too weak. We don't desire what we really should desire for ourselves, which is this ultimate perfection of unity with God. So it's not selfishness that's the problem. In fact, I was just looking through the Summa Theologia. I was wondering, have I missed it? So I looked through, through his list of, of vices. There's at least 60 or 70 vices that are listed in the second part of the second part there. And I was looking for, is there selfishness on there anywhere? No. So out of, you know, so he goes with 65 different vices. Selfishness is not one of those vices at all. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of an error to think that our problem is selfishness. The problem is, that we're selfish in the wrong way. Right? We're not, we're, we don't have the right kind of selfishness, in a sense, from, a, from, a, from, a, from Thomas's point of view. Now, having said that, the sixth point, and this, this seems to, in a way, push in the other direction. Sixth thesis, one's love for one's friends is for that friend's own sake and not as a means to one's own happiness or one's own fulfillment. And this is especially true for God. So we don't love God simply as a means to our own happiness, but we love him for his own sake. Um, and that's very important for Thomas. Um, we'll get into that a bit later. Uh, seventh thesis, the whole is prior to and therefore superior in importance, in importance to its parts. And therefore, the member of a community loves the community more than himself, and the creature loves God more than himself. So each member of a family loves the family more than himself. He should love the whole community more than his family. He should love God more than the community. So the, the larger the, the whole for Thomas, the greater the object of love and the greater our love should be. Okay. You can see already that there's some tensions here, right? Uh, and then finally, the perfected saint loves God above all else and loves himself only for the sake of God. Um, so God is really the ultimate object of our love and even self-love is a love for God. 
Now you can see that there are some tensions here in these eight theses, right? There are some points where they look, that seems to be an outright contradiction in a way between different parts of Thomas's theory. So first of all, there's a, there's a conflict between five and seven that says that, you know, the priority of the whole over the part, we should love the whole community rather than ourselves. We should love, you know, the whole community rather than our family, over our family. But then we have the order of caritatis, the order of charity that says, no, you love yourself more than your family, your family more than the community, and so on, right? So that seems like an outright, outright contradiction. Um, secondly, six through eight says, we should love our friends for their own sake, we should love God for his own sake and not for our own sake. One through four says, self-love is the basis of all other loves. So really, it seems like we should love everything else for our own sake, not for the sake of, of others or for God, ultimately. So how do we reconcile that apparent contradiction? A particular version of this paradox, which I'll talk about a little bit, is in Romans. Paul, in Romans 9, uh, chap chapter 9, verse 3, says that he would be willing to be, well, there are different translations, a cursed or anathema from Christ, if the Jews could be saved, right? And so there he seems to be willing to sacrifice even his own spiritual good, his own ultimate salvation for the sake of other people. But that seems to be in flat contradiction to one through four. This is no, no, your, your love for yourself has got to take priority over your love for everything else. And how do we reconcile that contradiction? Um, third contradiction, don't friends and even God become instrumentalized if we take one through four really seriously, right? So self-love is the ultimate foundation of everything else. It looks like I'm going to love my friend only insofar as he contributes to my happiness, and maybe even God, only insofar as he contributes to my happiness rather than loving him for his own sake, and yet 6 through 8 says, no, no, you have to love them for his own sake. Uh, contradiction four. Um, if we think that, okay, in fact, 1 through 4 are sort of wrong, right, that, in, that there are multiple ends that we should pursue, like our friend for his own sake, God for his own sake, then how do we reconcile that with the metaphysics of one through four that says that every substance can only have one ultimate end? So if my, if my ultimate end includes my own happiness and the happiness of my family and the community and ultimately God, then doesn't that make me four different substances with four different ultimate ends and isn't the unity of the person sort of destroyed as a result of this diversity? Um, and actually, that's the fifth contradiction, sort of the same point. So I, I'll, maybe I'll collapse four and five together. Okay, so that's, those are the problems that you can see, right? Apparent tensions and contradictions. This is why Nigrin says, you know, this attempt to reconcile Athens and Jerusalem is just not going to work, right? You've got Athens giving us one through four, all this self-love, eros kind of stuff. Six through eight are giving us all this agape, you know, you love for other people for their own sake. You can't reconcile these two. Aquinas is trying to square a circle here, right? He's trying to have his cake and eat it too, and you, you can't really do it. So let me try to, uh, and this is not an easy problem. I'm not saying I have the absolute simple complete answer to this, these problems. But I'll throw out some ideas. I've got five distinctions I want to make. Um, now basically, if you, if you have a philosopher and he has a theory, and you point out that the theory has internal contradictions, there's a standard move for philosophers to make, <laughs> which is to make distinctions, right? Okay, it looks like I've said P and not P, but really I said P in one sense and not P in this other sense, right? And there's a good reason why philosophers do that, because it's basically the only thing you can do, right? You can either say, okay, there's a contradiction, I've got to go back to the drawing board and redraw my whole theory, or you have to say, no, the theory is basically right, and these contra contradictions are only apparent contradictions. Once you make the relevant distinctions, you can see they go away. So that's exactly what Thomas does. Uh, and I think he does it well. I think he's basically on the right track. So I'll lay out some, con some distinctions. 
And they have five distinctions. They don't actually line up one to one with the contradictions that I mentioned, but they're all potentially relevant to the contradictions. So one distinction that I would like to try to make, and this is actually maybe the hardest one to make, is between intrinsic goods and ultimate goods. Okay? So Thomas says there's only one ultimate good. There's only one good that in terms of which everything else that's good is to be explained right, for us. And that's the beatific vision. That's the union with God. Right? But an intrinsic good is a good which you do for, for its own sake, right, as opposed to doing it for the sake of something else that's separate from it. Right? So I'm going to give you a few examples, like surgery or medicine in general are extrinsic goods. Nobody says, oh, I'd really like to have, undergo surgery. Well, please you know, do it. Uh, you do it only because it's good for some other purpose. It will restore your health, right? Really dangerous, unpleasant kind of work is probably like that, right? You know, nobody really, I don't know, maybe you could. But in general, you wouldn't say, oh, gee, let, please let me go down to a mine in really dangerous conditions and dig out the coal. You'd only do that because the end you know, justifies the means, these sorts of cases. But there are other things that are intrinsic goods, like friendship or the good of your friend, knowledge, health, and so on, right? And I don't think Thomas is saying that there's only one intrinsic good, which is union with God, and that everything else is instrumental only. So that if I have a friend, the good of my friend is only instrumental to that ultimate good of, of my beatific vision. I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's saying is, of course there are all these intrinsic goods, things that are good for their own sake, but not all of them are ultimate. In fact, only one of them can be ultimate which means that the other intrinsic goods have to be goods that are good because of their relationship to the ultimate good. Okay? So if I have a friend that my friend's happiness is an intrinsic good for me, I don't use my friend as an instrument to something else, like my own beatific vision. But why is friendship good for me? Because in fact it does contribute to my reaching the beatific vision, right? Uh, because it's, it's sort of a, a preamble to achieving that kind of ultimate vision. Um, so it's not metaphysically ultimate, right? It's not ontologically ultimate, even if it is intrinsic in terms of my desires or in terms of my uh, practical reasoning, why I'm doing it in a particular case. Um, now, to push back on this a little bit, Thomas in, in part one uh, of part two says in question one, article six, whatever man, whether, whatever man wills, he wills for the last end. So everything we will, we will for our last end, which is the beatific vision. But when you look at the two reasons he gives for this, I think it's helpful here. He says, one, we always desire things under the guise or the aspect of the good. And so it's always because they are in some sense tending to our ultimate end that we desire them. Okay? And then secondly, he says, the last end is the first mover. It's the ultimate thing that moves us to action. Right? But that's... In both cases, I think you can see that something like, like my health or the good of my friend or the good of my community, I mean, yes, I desire it because I can see that it is an aspect of my ultimate end as, as a holy person united with God. But that doesn't mean that it's just identical with that or that it's some extrinsic thing that's a means to that end. It's a guise of the end, but it's not, it's not just a means, an extrinsic means to that end. Right? That's, a, I think, an important distinction to make. And likewise, that the last end is the ultimate mover, the thing that first moves me to action, again, doesn't mean that that's the only thing I desire in it for its own sake, right? It's rather that it explains why I desire the other things that I do, 
right? It somehow, it somehow moves me to desire these other things as well as ultimately desire with God. And here I, I like to use the example of, of animals. So, so what Thomas says is really true for animals too. I mean, in the, in the end, all animals are also ultimately seeking God. <laughs> They're also seeking the greater glory of God. That's the ultimate first mover of everything. But of course, you know, the squirrel or the oak tree <laughs> or the fish, I mean, it's desiring uh, survival, you know, food, uh, mating, and so on. There's specific things that it's made to desire. And then if we ask, well, why does the squirrel desire food, right? Well, because it, it's, it's, an end, it's, it's something that enables the squirrel to live its squirrely life, which ultimately leads to the glory of God, right? So, so the glory of God is the ultimate explanation, right? But it's not that the squirrel is sort of consciously thinking, I want to glorify God, so here's a piece of nut, so I better eat it, right? It, you know, he, he desires those things, but the, the explanation for the desire itself is ultimately going to be in terms of God. And likewise for us, um, you know, we, we recognize that knowledge and friendship and all these things are good, and we recognize them as good because ultimately they are leading us to God in some respect. Um, but still we desire for them for their own sake, not merely as instruments. So that's the first and very important distinction, I think. Second distinction, this one's not so relevant, but I just want to throw it out here because it's definitely in Thomas. Maybe it'll be relevant. And that's the distinction between corporal and spiritual goods. So there's some things that are good for me with respect to my body, right? So again, health. Uh, food, shelter, and so on, right? Uh, but then there are also things that are good for me in respect to my soul, right? And that, of course, ultimately is, is union with God. And Thomas is very clear that, that your spiritual or soulish goods are, are superior to your corporeal goods, right? Which is why he says um, we should love the spiritual good of our neighbors more than our own corporal good, right? So if I have to sacrifice my corporal good for the spiritual good of my neighbor, I should definitely do that. If I have to become a martyr or whatever, sacrifice my life even for the spiritual good of my neighbors, that makes sense for me. Um, but that's not really sacrificing my total good, right? Because my corporal good is only a very small part of my total good. And to be a martyr is very much to contribute to my spiritual good, right? So it's not, it's not coming at, my, at, a, at a cost to myself. Um, thirdly, we have to distinguish between private goods and common goods, okay? Um, so, here I need to back up a little bit. Uh, Aristotle explains that happiness, the thing that we're aiming for, is a kind of activity. Right? It's, it's a way of living that we're all aiming for. And that fits with, with Thomas's ultimate view, which is the beatific vision, because that itself is a kind of activity. It's contemplating and worshiping and adoring God you know, in a context of understanding him. So, um, so it's, it's an activity. Now, Human beings are social animals, or political animals. So a lot of things, in fact, almost everything we do, we do with other people, right? We don't just, we aren't typically Robinson Crusoe kind of creatures that are just doing things on our own. We do things together with other people. So we, we engage in political activity together. We engage in scientific or philosophical activity together, right? And even in the beatific vision, it's really clear for Thomas, that that too is a social activity, right? we share together in the contemplation of God. When we talk about the beatific vision, sometimes it sounds like it's this very uh, if, you know, intellectual and purely like, individual thing. Right? Each one of us individually experiences the beatific vision and other people are just kind of there you know, for whatever reason. Right? Um, I don't want to say that that's completely wrong, but 
for Thomas, it's important that the beatific vision is something that we share as a society. It's the whole kingdom of God. It's all the blessed together that are sharing this beatific vision. Dante has a really beautiful picture of this in the Paradiso. If you've ever read the Paradiso, but you should. Where towards the end, where you have all the saints are like mirrors in this vast uh, spherical arrangement. And they're all reflecting the light of God onto, onto each other. Uh, so when I, when I understand the beatific vision of God, it's, it's not entirely direct. It's also largely indirect through reflecting God's glory from other, from other believers. I think that's actually what the different degrees of glory amount to. Some, like the Virgin Mary, will reflect God's glory more perfectly than others, right? But it won't be something that she just enjoys for herself. It's, it's she's sharing it with everyone else, right? It's a, it's a common good that we're all sharing in. So, um, so that's very important. But, um, and so when we participate with other people in, in a joint activity, um, you know, the activity is no longer something that I own myself. Right? I, it's, I'm part of this larger activity. And this is really what Thomas and others mean by the common good. It means that there's some good that we all are getting by participating together in this activity. So when we get together in a family and we you know, build a family together, those things that we do that make that family possible and, and to prosper, those are, that, that, that is our common good, that common familial activity. When we get there politically and pursue justice together and pursue, pursue um, you know, our, our, especially justice, uh, our reasonable life together, that's our, that's our common good. So it's very important to recognize that our common good, and this is very different from our private good. So I can, I can abstract my private good from that common good. I can say, what good is it that I enjoy that I don't enjoy because I'm cooperating with other people, but just in myself, right? You know, so sitting watching TV or, you know, enjoying a good meal on my, by my own and so on. There's, a, there's some private goods, but they're, they're pretty meager right, compared to our common good. But they certainly exist, right? Um, the crucial thing here is that for Thomas and for this tradition, the common good is not just the sum of the private goods, right? It's very important to understand. Thomism is not a kind of utilitarianism, where there's a kind of private good for each individual, and the common good is just the sum of all those. That's completely wrong. The, the common good is not the sum of the other private goods. It's actually completely independent of all our private goods. It's a thing that we all share together equally in, namely participating together in, in a political realm. Okay, so therefore, um, should I pursue the common good over my own private good? Yes, because the common good is a very big part of my good, my true happiness, right? My private good is a tiny little bit. The common good represents a much larger piece of it, right? So therefore, it makes perfectly sense for me to pursue that, right, rather than others. Now, this leads to our, my fourth distinction between my private good and the private good of other people, okay? So, um, so should I love myself privately more than, my other, than other members of my family or other people in the community? Yes. I mean, in fact, I should, I should prefer my own private good over theirs because I'm more closely connected to myself. Right? Should I prefer the common good over myself, over my private good? Of course, because that's a bigger part of my own true happiness. Right? So there's actually no tension here, properly understood, between the idea that, um, that I, in some sense I prioritize my own good over others right? and the idea that I prioritize the common good over my own private good. So my private good has priority over the private good of my members and my family, their private good over private good of other members in the community, their private good over the private good of, of strangers outside that community, right? Um, 
And that's perfectly consistent with saying that I should prefer the common good of the whole community over the common good of the family over my own private good. So there's actually no, no inconsistency there. Right? Uh, an example of this, there's a lot of things we could say about this, but I'll just give one simple example. Um, I think Thomas talks about this. Cicero talks about something similar. Um, so, you know, suppose that you're, you're, you know, your spouse is, is, is accused of a crime and you know that you know some evidence that's very damning against her or him, right? Should you, be, should you testify against them, right? The law says no, right? Because, um, you know, you should prioritize your spouse's good over the good of other people in the community, right? And the community recognizes that that's part of the common good, that people should act that way, right? So the, the, order, the order of charity, the idea that you should prefer your own family to other people is itself part of the common good of the larger community. It's not actually in conflict with it. I like to use the example of someone like Peter Singer and, and uh, who, who has this, this problem, right, that he's a utilitarian. So he thinks that, you know, if I could save two starving people in Africa and the cost I had to pay was to allow my own child to starve to death, I should go for the Africans, right? Because it's two rather than one, right? Uh, he can't recognize this order of charity, right? Whereas from Thomas's point of view, from the classical point of view, of course, you know, it's very sad that I have to allow those Africans to die. You know, I, I hope I could help them, but I'm not going to help them at the cost of my own children, right? <laughs> That's got to take priority. That's the order of charity. And it's good for the whole community that I should act that way, right? It would be bad if we were all Peter Singers, right? <laughs> if we all didn't care for our own families and just looked at the general welfare all the time, right? And so, um, so that's, that's a case where the common good and the order of charity is actually perfectly compatible with each other, I think. Um, Okay, I'm going to talk about that. Um, now, finally, how do we reconcile the idea that this is the hardest, in some ways, the hardest one, right? That my own self-love is the foundation of all other loves, yet I should love God more than any, even myself and love myself for the God's sake. You know, how do you reconcile all of that? It's a bit tricky. I think it has to do with the fact that God is, is in a very unique situation, right? He is the very principle of good, right? He's the basis. He's what makes every good thing good. And so even my own happiness is good only because of God. And so he's the one case where I think we have to say that I have to love, I should love God even more than my own happiness. And of course, it gets very complicated here because my own happiness is union with God, right? And so, um, you know, in a way, it, it, it's maybe not that surprising that I should love God even more than my own union with God but, you know, but still, everything else should be subordinated to that union with God, ultimately. Okay, so resolving the contradictions real, real quickly. Um, the tension between self-love and the order of charity. I think I've talked a little bit about that. Um, there's a distinction here between loving one's own private good and loving one's total good, one's all-inclusive good, including the common good. And, um, and of course, one loves God. Now, here's an interesting question. Why do we love God more than... Um, the, the community, and uh, even the community of fellow believers or fellow blessed in, in heaven. And Thomas actually discusses this explicitly, and he says that, um, so in heaven, in the beatific vision, we will have a kind of unity with other, of other blessed souls and angels, a, a union, he calls it, but we'll have a kind of a unity with God. So each of us will be unified with God to a greater degree than we're unified with the other blessed. And so therefore, it makes sense for us to, even, you know, to, to love God more than the other rest of the community. Now, of course, this again raises the problem of Romans 9.3, where Paul seems to say 
that he would give up his own salvation for the sake of, of saving the Jews, where it looks like he's putting the priority here over the other potential believers over his own salvation. So I thought, well, what does Thomas say about this? Fortunately, Thomas actually has a commentary on Romans. So I looked it up and looked up Romans 9.3. And he says, well, okay, so first of all, uh, sometimes the, the phrase here, anathema, is translated cursed, that he would be cursed for, for, uh, for the saving of Jews. And Thomas points out that really it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means set apart or separated. And so Thomas's suggestion seems to be that what Paul is really saying is, I'd be willing to at least postpone my own unity with Christ in order that the Jews would be saved. And that would fit in very nicely with things he said, for instance, to the Philippians, where he says, you know, it'd be better for me to be united with Christ right now, but for your sake, I'm going to you know, hope that it's postponed so that I can serve you. So maybe that's, that's the idea. Because Thomas says explicitly, you should never you know, commit a mortal sin for the sake of somebody else's spiritual good. It's kind of hard to see, imagine a case where that would actually make sense. But if you're ever tempted to do that, don't do it. Right? <laughs> you, you, should, you should look after, you have to look out for your own soul salvation first of all. And, uh, and for others, even their salvations in a secondary kind of way, uh, Thomas says. I think that's, that's quite important. Um, so friend and God, friends and God are not instrumentalized because, again, it's not, that, it's not that I use my friend's happiness for my own happiness. It's rather that because of our partnership together in living, our happiness is sort of merged together so that you can't even distinguish anymore between my friend's happiness and my happiness to a large extent. They overlap substantially, right? So, so, I'm not, so we're working together for our joint happiness rather than using each other for their own separate happiness. Um, and, then, and then finally, if all this works, then we don't compromise the ontological unity of the individual human being. We still have a single ultimate end. Uh, and so we can still reconcile Eros and Agape if, if Thomas is right. So let's stop there. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating. And please donate so we can do even more.